Hello again, everyone. Welcome back to the podcast. Um, today, as I mentioned last time, I want to go into the neoclassical period in literature. Uh, and I decided to change directions on this lecture a little bit. Uh, this one's going to talk not as much about any particular writer as we have been doing or any particular piece of literature within the period, but we're going to talk a little bit more about the history and the trends and the sort of overall trends of the writings. Now, we will go into, in future seasons, uh, more depth on some of the individual writers, but this is kind of a time period that is uh, very chaotic, but also very crucial because it does tie a lot um, of the way the world sort of becomes between the Renaissance and the Romantic period. This is the period that links the two. And so there's a lot of, can be expected, changes that go on both in France and England and all over Europe and uh, in the time period. But I'm going to stick to mainly England and, and talk about France a little bit as well. Um, now, in the end of the Renaissance period, um, England's already broken away to being Church of England, uh, Henry VIII had done that before the time of Shakespeare. So by the time Shakespeare is writing, um, England has become uh, Church of England. It's no longer a Catholic country the way it was when uh, Geoffrey Chaucer was writing. Um, but there's more changes to come when it comes to religion. This is not a once and final transition from Catholicism to Church of England because there's a lot of movement back and forth depending on who's on who's on the throne. And then we also have a period where the monarchy gets completely thrown out and Oliver Cromwell takes over uh, as ruler of the nation. And he's Cromwell is a Puritan. So this is still a different form of Protestantism than um, Church of England. So there's a lot of religious turmoil back and forth. Um, one of the things that... Uh, you see in the Renaissance is you saw a lot of uh, characters that were either, or situations I should say, and characters that were either going back to antiquity, you know, talking about Greek and Roman uh, gods, goddesses, uh, characters, or going to other parts of Europe for the stories. Uh, things like, you know, um, uh, the Merchant of Venice and things like that, where Shakespeare set a lot of his stories in Italy. The Tempest, you know, originally is out of Italy. <clears throat> and a lot of this has to do with uh, literature had to really sidestep a lot of the political turmoil. Because if you didn't, you ran the risk of being uh, pretty much not only executed if you supported the wrong side, but having everything you've done pretty much erased from being known about. Uh, unless you happen to be very lucky. Now, one person who did manage to go back and forth uh, quite a bit, although his luck eventually ran out at the end, was John Dryden. And Dryden is towards the beginning of what is known as the Neoclassical period. Uh, the Neoclassical period in England is generally thought to have started about 1660, uh, which is the... Um, uh, the Restoration, where the monarchy becomes restored. Uh, Cromwell dies, Cromwell's son takes over, uh, Cromwell's son is not able to hold on to power, he's not as bright as his father was, and so uh, Charles and the monarchy are able to come back into power. Now this, <clears throat> this 
changes everything because overnight it goes from a Puritan country where all the theaters have been closed. This is one of the things that Cromwell did, closed all the theaters, to now the theaters are opened again. But one of the things that they do not want um, is they do not want for the uh, religion to be so much out in the open as it was in the Middle Ages. You know, one of the things in the Middle Ages, it was easier for it to be open about Christianity because under Christianity, you had, everybody was Catholic at the time. When you get to this period, you have religious wars between the Catholics, the Protestants, uh, and the Puritans um, on one side. <clears throat> so you have much more instability and much more of a desire just to avoid the whole thing altogether. And so to go back into material, the writers in this time period, as a lot of the writers in the Renaissance did, went back to the time period of ancient Greece and ancient Rome in order to give them sort of their styles uh, that they would be writing in, some of their ideals. Um, but they abandoned part of what the Renaissance did. The Renaissance was really about making exceptional individuals. In the Renaissance, you have people like da Vinci and Michelangelo and, you know, all of these great people who were not just writers or just painters or just sculptors or just scholars these or just athletes. These were people who did all of these things. You know, they were inventors. They were scholars. They were athletes. They were painters. They were poets. They were philosophers. <clears throat> and so you build very strong individuals. Well, one of the things that the time period is trying to get away from is sort of these strong individuals and strong groups that are kind of tearing each other, tearing at each other and tearing society apart. So a lot of the neoclassical period sort of wants to go back to those ideas and those inspirations, but it wants to use it more of a idea as uh, humans are something to be um, perfected, but perfected as members of society. So they want it to be a much more uh, socially driven, much more about uh, creating more or less perfect citizens rather than perfect individuals. So the parts of, you know, stressing the individual and the powers of the individual, that gets downplayed in the neoclassical period. And the structures and forms of the literature um, go back to the structures like Virgil used in the Aeneid. Um, most of the poetry that is written is written in iambic pentameter with uh, rhymed couplets. Uh, this is known as the heroic couplet, is the official name of it, the formal name of it. But uh, iambic pentameter, for those that are not familiar with poetry, is basically a ten-syllable line. Uh, and it's broken up into five uh, sets of two syllables. <clears throat> the first syllable is an unstressed syllable. The second syllable is the stressed syllable. And it works through the five uh, five meters like that. Unstressed, stressed, unstressed, stressed, unstressed, stressed, until you get to, you know, five sets of two. So the lines were equal in length as far as syllable. They weren't equal in length necessarily, uh, letter count, because obviously some one-syllable words are longer than others, 
Uh, some multiple syllable words are longer than others. Uh, but the syllable counts were the same. And they always had the rhyme at the end. Now this is something that creates a very um, stylistic literature, a very formal literature. It's often something that is not popular today. We don't like to do a lot of, see a lot of poetry with end-rhymed couplets. Uh, we consider it kind of strange to the modern ear. About the only place you'll see something like that is uh, in songs. And usually even in songs, they kind of uh, use an ABAB rhyme scheme instead of rhyming the lines at the end. <clears throat> so it's a very stylized and very archaic sound, at least to the modern ear. Now, it was very popular at that time period. Uh, the writers were extremely popular, and especially Dryden. Um, but it's something that the modern reader has to kind of become accustomed to. Uh, there, there will be some poems we'll do in the future that uh, do cover this, uh, but I'm going to kind of shy away from that right now. Um, now, one of the things about... Latin in particular that made this uh, this uh, line pattern very easy to do is that Latin is a is an inflected language. It it doesn't have to do much with word order. In fact, word order in Latin is completely irrelevant. Uh, when you write a sentence in Latin, it doesn't matter which order you put the words. Um, in English or in French or in most other languages, uh, there's a particular word order you should use. Like if I were going to say, the dog bit me, I would have to put it in that order for it to make sense. If I put me bit the dog, um, it wouldn't have the same meaning. And it would also, uh, you could tell by the fact that I used me, that me wasn't the subject of the sentence, um, but it would just look like a grammatical error. In Latin, you could have put that in any order you wanted because what determined whether a word was a subject or a predicate or an object uh, was an ending. So you would put an ending at the word so I would know that dog was the subject of that sentence. There would be an ending on the word me or on the word man if the dog bit the man that would let me know that man is the direct object. Man is not the subject doing the biting. So I can put that sentence in any order I want. <clears throat> now, one of the things that this does is there are regular endings for each part of speech, which means when you write the lines, it's much easier to find end rhymes. It's much easier, easier to do couplets at the end because you can move the order in any way you want so that the words you want to, to rhyme fall at the end of the line. So you write them so that they fall in. And the the normal Latin uh, poetry generally had end stops. So the sentence would stop at the end of the line. They would deliberately write these lines to be five iambic pentameters with an end uh, rhyme on every couplet, every two lines. Uh, this is something a little more difficult in English because we have to deal with word order. Also more difficult to do in French because French also has word order that it has to uh, deal with. Um, but they saw this as being something that would be a refining element. You know, literature was about refining people, sort of making them uh, more able to function within society.
As you can tell from the sounds of this, the neoclassical period is a much more conservative period. Uh, the Renaissance was a much more um, radical period, much more change, things happening quickly, uh, power structures being challenged, as you can see by you know, the Catholic Church breaking up into uh, different churches, Protestant and Catholic. Um, the powers of the monarchy get challenged. Uh, you have challenges to the order of things. You know, in the feudal system, pretty much wherever you're born is where you stay. If you're born a serf, you'll die a serf. If you're born a king, you'll die a king. There is no upward or downward mobility. Well, the Renaissance started to challenge that because some of the people who were the biggest names in the Renaissance, uh, people like da Vinci, were not people of uh, royal bloodlines. In fact, da Vinci was uh, a bastard son of a peasant, uh, so he didn't have a position, and yet he was able to rise in society because of his abilities. <clears throat> so one of the things that the neoclassical period becomes is a is kind of a fighting against that, trying to move things back to a more structured society under the monarchy. They're trying to get it back to the way the good old days, the way it was under the Roman Empire, the way it was in the Middle Ages when you know the hierarchy was set in stone. This is what it was. Um, the problem with this is that. This is also a time period where you have a lot more people who have become educated because of ideas of the Renaissance, because of new inventions, because of new technologies. Uh, you can't keep everyone uneducated like you can when most people were just you know, farming the land and the rich people were doing all of the decisions. So now you have middle class people that are educated and middle-class people that are actually starting to accumulate wealth. And this is another challenge to the system and another reason that it becomes very conservative, very much longing for the good old days, because that stable power system that they had had for so many hundreds and hundreds of years was being challenged and changed. Uh, and this is not something that is easy to deal with. Uh, humans don't usually do well with change, particularly change that is rapid. Uh, with change, there's often chaos until the kinks get worked out, until people figure out what they need to do. And so the a lot of the neoclassical period is kind of trying to reestablish this orderly, civilized society. And this is something that Again, history always swings back and forth between jumping forward and, you know, longing for the past and becoming more conservative. And so as we get towards the end of the neoclassical period, um, this is why you really start to get the spark of the romantic period. And there are political things that spark this. Uh, the American Revolution and the French Revolution are huge factors that spark uh, romanticism because romanticism will move the emphasis from the upper classes to more middle class characters. You know, still during the neoclassical period, middle class characters are usually there for comedies. If you have comedies, uh, you have middle class characters. Same way you had in Shakespeare, same way you had in Chaucer. You know, these characters were there for comic relief. Any serious dramas 
would involve the upper classes and would involve um, sort of the upper classes demonstrating uh, solid morality, uh, solid thinking, solid leadership. And so you have the beginnings of the end of that time period. And as you start to get sort of a rise of this middle class who's getting more and more money and the aristocracy is actually making less and less money because the value of the, the wealth is no longer based on land completely, starts to be based on industry, starts to be based on trade, which this is the domain of the middle class. Um, and as you have more and more of the middle class that become readers, you start to get um, writers who start to change who they're writing for. And one of the big ideas of Romanticism is it kind of changes from all of this is mainly written for the aristocracy to the aristocracy is not the ones that have the money anymore. We need to write this for the middle class because they're the ones that have the money. They're going to the plays. They're buying the books. Okay, I'm going to break off uh, for now. Uh, on my next episode, we will be going into Romanticism. Uh, we're going to be talking about Wordsworth, and we're going to be talking about how Wordsworth is kind of a big break between the neoclassical period and the next period, the Romantics. I hope all of you are doing well, and I hope all of you are staying safe. Have a good night.